What would you say are the essentials of a thriving, healthy, missional church? Well, I'm sure you'd probably think, well, it has to be a place that proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus. And it surely needs to be a place that teaches and preaches the Word of God, a place where people are regularly coming to faith in Jesus Christ and being discipled in the faith, a place of vibrant worship, of devotion to prayer, and of good youth and children's ministries. And how about a church having a heart for missions, which should be demonstrated and would be demonstrated both globally and locally in, in both service and in giving. And of course, this healthy, missional, thriving church should have sound governance with policies and procedures that share ministry and leadership as a priesthood of believers. And good management also should take place in this church of church resources, of donations, of the facilities, of equipment, and all those kinds of things. And this would also be a friendly church with strong fellowship and good hospitality, a place where people can exercise their faith and their gifts. And it would be a multi-generational church. And wherever possible, it would be a multi-ethnic gathering of believers. Would you agree with all those things? Does that what a thriving, healthy, missional church should be like? Well, you know, there's one thing that doesn't make most people's lists that's absolutely essential to being a thriving, healthy, missional church. And you know what it is? It's called church discipline. Healthy missional churches practice church discipline because it's something that's absolutely essential. It's necessary for church health. In Hebrews chapter 12, the latter part of verse 5 and verse 6, it says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Discipline is not God saying to us, I am through with you, or it's not some kind of abandonment by God. Rather, it is a loving act of God to bring us back to Him. Now, God also does not limit the scope of discipline in His kingdom to Himself. He delegates some of it. For example, the parenting of children. Parents are to bring up their children in the training and the instruction of the Lord. And part of rearing children is discipline so that children can learn uh, correct and moral behavior, so that children can develop character and establish a work ethic and learn how to get along with others. Now, if you wonder why our society is in such chaos right now, it's strictly, I won't say the only reason, but it's predominantly a parenting issue that's going on because of the breakdown of the family. Do you know that right now in America, that 54% of children growing up in America, sometime in their childhood, will be in a single parent home? Many of them fatherless homes. And if you wonder why we have all this disorder, all this chaos, you can understand that there's parental issues. There's a breakdown of the family, and some of that relates to a lack of discipline. Some of the things that people are doing nowadays, 40, 50 years ago, would have gotten serious trouble at home if they were doing those kinds of things. 
There's the breakdown of the family. And it's a discipline that God entrusts to parents. It's one of the delegated authorities that God does in his kingdom. Parents, we want you to know that as a church, we're here to assist you in this process. And that's also why we as a church need to roll up our sleeves and get involved in ministry. The way our culture right now is going after children to indoctrinate them in the ways of the world, we need to intervene and we need to minister. It used to be that you had to reach a young person by the age of 17 or 18. Then that age dropped to 12 or 13. Now it's somewhere in elementary school. That's why our Mission Kids ministry is so important in this church. And I've got a deal for you this morning. If you want to complain about what's going on in our culture right now and all the disorder and dysfunction and chaos and all that, but don't get involved in ministry, especially ministry to children, then I kind of think you might forfeit your right to complain because we're not doing anything about changing that or stemming that tide. It's one of the reasons we went with the Mission Kids program that we have here at our church. It's because we're trying to intervene in young people's lives earlier and come alongside parents who are bringing their children up in, in the way of the Lord. And so I encourage you to sign up today. Don't leave here before you stop at the table and sign up. Do something. Help in what way you can. And parents, it's also crucial for you to plug in as well because your children and your grandchildren need to see the authority figures in their lives being accountable to others. They need to see you actually serving under the direction and leadership and even the authority of someone else. And they need to see you serving and not simply being a consumer. They need to see you being a giver. And if you're passionate about your faith and you serve others, there's a pretty strong chance that your children are going to grow up and embrace that same faith. They're going to catch it. Now, God also de delegates matters of discipline in his kingdom to the church family. And once again, for the health, the vitality, the mission of the church. Think of it this way, for the witness of the church. Now, in our text today, the Apostle Paul is very concerned that the church at Corinth is, is following the proper steps in dealing with a sinning member in the church, in the Lord. And it's true that some churches are very reluctant to discipline erring members, while other churches can simply carry it way too far, and they're too harsh and too direct. Healthy churches practice church discipline because they understand church discipline is necessary for the church's well-being. Now, our first order of business today as Westerners who prize our individual freedoms and have grown up in a transient communities of isolated individualism where we cut our teeth on consumerism, we need to understand that being part of the church is not some kind of consumeristic decision. Being part of a Christian community isn't just pursuing a brand name or simply following a slogan. Our local assembling of God's people is the very extension of our identity. When a person comes to faith in Christ, they're born into a family with brothers and sisters in Christ, and our fortunes are inextricably intertwined. It's all intertwined together. Now verse 5 says, if anyone has caused grief, he's not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too 
severely. Now he's writing here to the church at Corinth, which was the gateway to Greece. It was one of the hubs of the Greco-Roman culture. And this person who has sinned has acted out in the church. And Paul says, this person has grieved me. Yeah, I'm an apostle, has grieved me. But more so has grieved all of you in the church because we all belong to one another. Now the apostle had learned earlier from his partners in ministry who had visited Corinth that there were some struggles in the church. So Paul pays this uh, unscheduled, unexpected visit to the Corinthians, planning to help them fix some things. And then he moves on. Uh, But that was his goal, to move on. But to his astonishment, he was opposed to his face. Apparently, some leader in the Corinthian church publicly opposed Paul while the church just sat back and kind of passively observed. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11 says, I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to do it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I'm not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. Now, we know from reading uh, these different letters to the Corinthians that this attacker piled on criticism that Paul was somehow dishonest or double-minded, that he was lacking courage, and even questioning his ministerial effectiveness. Now, such a surprise attack and such lack of support from the church totally caught Paul off guard, which then necessitated a strongly worded letter that shook the church up, motivating them to take a stand against this offending brother by enacting some church discipline. So to Paul, the church was central to a Christian's existence. He simply could not conceive of faithful Christians uh, living apart from the visible church. You can't do that. You can't be devoted and faithful to the Lord and somehow live a separate life from the gathered community. Now, Jesus taught about the importance of dealing with uh, uh, erring brothers and sisters in Christ. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, here's the instructions that he's given to the church. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I say to you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with you. Here's how you do it. If someone has sinned, you go to them in private. You don't have to make a big deal of this. No major issues here. Just talk to them privately about it. And if you, they listen and they, 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 you know, they change their course of action, hey, that's great. You've won them over. If they don't listen, take one or two others with you so that it can be established by, by two or three witnesses. And, and hopefully, and, and Lord willing, they will listen in that case. But if they refuse to listen even then, Then you bring it to the church. And whatever you decide as a church and standing up against this erring brother or sister in Christ, I'm with you because whatever is bound on earth is is bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. 
And that was the instruction. And no question, that's what the Apostle Paul had taught the church at Corinth to do. And it had reached that point where the church had to take some kind of discipline. Now, Paul also wrote in Galatians chapter 6, 1, how you go about dealing with a sister or brother in Christ who's erring. And it says in verse 1, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourself or you be uh, also be tempted now if someone's caught in sin and literally has the language there of someone being snared you know like the bunny rabbit hopping down the trail and didn't know there was a snare there and boom they're caught so people don't always intentionally go off and and just sin blatantly they get caught up sometimes in things but restore that person go to them yes following these biblical steps but do it uh, conscientiously and, and with a spirit of gentleness. Church discipline is necessary for the well-being of the church. Now, I do happen to serve on the board of ordered ministry in our denomination right now. I have just completed my fourth year on this national board with one year remaining of my five-year term. And this is our denominational board that oversees pastors' credentialing as well as gives oversight to their faith, their doctrine, and their conduct. And our denomination holds its pastor's credentials. It's not the local church that holds them. It's the denomination that holds the pastor's credentials, which means their ministry licenses or, or their ordinations. And as a result, sometimes this committee that I serve on has to deal with people and suspend pastor's credentials. And if they err in doctrine or conduct, we interview them and then make those decisions. If they refuse to change or whatever, then, then it depends on the length of time that the suspension will go. The goal is always, though, restoration. And in some cases, uh, people's licenses are suspended and people themselves will simply self-select. They will just resign and move on with their lives. Some will choose to fight their suspensions. And if they do that, it gets moved up to the annual meeting of our denomination. They get to give their, their plea there. And then the annual meeting, which is our highest authority in our denomination, will make a decision on that. And most cases, in fact, every case I know of that reaches that point, they are removed. Uh, their credentials are taken away from them. Most, however, submit to the care and the discipline of the board of ordered ministry. And they work through the process and they come out on the other side in a better place. It's hard. This is one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life in ministry, but it's also one of the most beautiful things I've ever been able to experience in ministry. Yes, as the Apostle Paul says here, church discipline does have its limits. There's a time when it should come to an end. Look at verse 6. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Obviously, we have a majority here who agreed with what Paul was trying to steer them in that direction. But there are some who didn't agree. Maybe some who thought it should have been harsher and more stricter. Or maybe some who thought there should be no church discipline whatsoever. In the church family, it is impossible for there to be strife and grievances between two people and not have that spread to others. It's no different than having family members or children at odds with one another and think that that somehow won't impact the rest of the family. To not address these things in the church with some kind of discipline is to sweep them under the rug and to invite more problems down the road. You know, Cindy and I, before we went to seminary, 
were involved in a church plant in Sparta, Wisconsin. In fact, this September, they're celebrating their 40th anniversary, and they've invited us to come down and be there for that weekend because we were there uh, at the very beginning, early days of this uh, free church uh, plant. And uh, we're trying to work it out right now, being short of staff, if we can make it there for that particular weekend. But it was an exciting work. And every Tuesday evening, I would go out visiting with one of the elders uh, on, on the, on the uh, board. And we would be reaching out to people. Sometimes we would have appointments with people. Other times we would just go knocking on doors. And I really looked up to this church elder, and he was really working hard to make this church plant work. Well, when I was in seminary, this elder ended up having an affair and ran off with another woman in the church. He also opened sealed bids on their new church building project that was coming up because he was trying to get his buddies to, to throw bids into the project so they could get the work. And then he pilfered some of the church's building fund money because he was having an affair and uh, living a double life and leading a double life is very expensive. Well, it was eventually all discovered and this man was removed from all leadership roles in the church. And then when he refused to stop the affair and repent of his sins, then he was removed from church membership as well. Church discipline is necessary for the well-being of the church, as you can see in that one particular example. But what you need to understand today, something very important here in this text, is it doesn't end just there. Because the goal of church discipline is always restoration. Look at verses 7 and 8. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Obviously, this man has repented. He's come to his senses. He's had a change of heart. He's realized his wrongdoing. So God's word says to us, now you need to change your stance toward this individual from one of punishment to one of love and acceptance. The goal, it says here in this passage, has been reached. And you know the mark of true repentance is sorrow. Sorrow for one's actions. Sorrow for one's hurtful words. Sorrow for one's omissions. Because many times when you're going one direction in the wrong direction, you're omitting things in the other direction you should be doing. Things that haven't been done. And it's sorrow for all of those things. It's a wholehearted recognition of wrongdoing with the acknowledgement that I don't deserve forgiveness. And the acknowledgement and the desire to want to make amends. That's the mark of true repentance. But the mark of true repentance is not the popular apology that we hear celebrities and politicians and other high-profile public figures making in our day and age. I don't know if they, if they sell this stuff on the internet or what, but how do people keep coming up with the same kinds of response? I'm sorry that you were offended by what I did. Or I'm so sorry that you were offended by what I said. Or sometimes they will even say it more generally. I, you, know, I'm so, you know, if I offended anybody, I am sorry. That, that's not sorrow that leads to repentance. That's being sorry that they got caught. I'm sorry that you got offended by this. You know, it's not sorrow for what they've done wrong or said wrong. No, you were offended by it, so that's what I feel bad about that you were offended. No, Paul is saying here, this guy has come around. The discipline has worked. So don't keep punishing him so that he experiences this excessive sorrow. 
forgive and comfort him. Restore him. Verses 9 through 11. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. I wanted to see if that you would be obedient in everything. And yes, you were slow to the draw when it came to disciplining this individual. But you eventually came around and disciplined him. And verse 8 says here that I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. Yes, discipline is the loving thing to do. You've disciplined him because you care about this person. You don't want them to destroy their life or destroy the church or cause these other problems in the community. You've done that. That's the loving thing to do. But now prove your love to him. Complete your love to him by reaffirming this person and forgiving him. I wanted to see if you'd be obedient in both aspects of disciplining and also reaffirming your love for this person. This is now all in the past, Paul says. Do not hold it over this person's head any longer because they've learned their lesson. I have forgiven them also. And if that helps you in this process, I want you to know that I've done that in the face of Christ. That's what I've done. So we can no longer get historical with this person. We can no longer remind them of their mistakes. It's now a new chapter. So let's move on. Let's move forward so that Satan doesn't outwit us. You know, the Bible does not want us to be ignorant of the evil one's designs. When an arsonist is on the loose, you can expect a bunch of fires to break out. When we have an enemy like the devil, we can expect casualties. So do not allow him a foothold in the church through unforgiveness. You know, in American history, we are taught that eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. You know, we don't get to keep this liberty that we have as a great nation if there isn't a continued vigilance for that liberty. Well, the same is true in the church. This crazy world we live in is under the tutelage of a madman, of Satan. So we have to be on guard and exercise the tools at our, dis at our disposal for repentant sinners, the tools of love the tools of forgiveness, the tools of affirmation and comfort, which are all part and parcel of the restoration process. You know, I read recently of a mental health institution years ago that had come up with a very simple test to find out if their patients were ready for re-entry into the world or not. And they would put them in a room with a tap slowly running water, and they would, it would be building up on the floor and they would hand them a mop with the instructions to mop up all of this water. And if the person recognized immediately this tap that was running and went over and shut it off and then mopped up the water, they were ready for re-entry into the real world. But if the person just kept trying to mop up constantly and couldn't quite get all the water mopped up, they came to the conclusion that they were not ready for re-entry. We have to shut off Satan's tap of division, his tap of conflict and bitterness and anger and hatred, all of that through forgiveness and through love when others have acknowledged their wrongdoing and have learned their lessons. And personally, I do not know of a more beautiful portrait of this very thing in the Bible 
than the account of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. This, of course, is the parable of the younger son who takes his inheritance before its time and he goes off to a foreign land and he squanders it on all this sinful, licentious living. Meanwhile, there's a father waiting at home, watching the horizon, knowing that when his son has reached the end and he's ready to admit his wrongdoing, that his son would come home. At the first glance of his son on the horizon, the father runs down the road to meet him, and with arms wide he embraces his wayward son. Before the young man can even give a single or utter a single syllable of his memorized statement that has been rolling around in his head all of these days and weeks as he's journeyed home on foot, that I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Before his son could even get the words out, his father wraps his arms around him and was calling for a celebration. The father was overjoyed because he knew that his son would never have returned had he not acknowledged that he was wrong. And he did not wait for the boy to say the magic words, I was wrong, please forgive me. He had already forgiven him. The very appearance of his son on the horizon was enough to tell the father that his son was home again and sorry for what he had done. And not wanting him to be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, the father forgave him. And this is the way, and this, by the way, is an allegory. And not all parables and many passages in the Bible are not, but there are some that are. And it's a picture of what God does for each one of us, our loving heavenly father. And that's what he wants us to do for others when they, in, in the church, because he's delegated this role to us in church discipline. He wants us to take a stand in church discipline, but he also wants us to forgive and to love and to reaffirm people when they do come to their senses. The goal of church discipline is always restoration. Let's pray together. God, our Father, today we readily admit to you that we have all sinned and fallen short of your glory and that, God, we don't like to be in the business of judging others. But yet, God, in your kingdom, you tell us that we are to judge rightly those in the church. And when there's behavior that is in contradiction, God, with your will and your will for the church, and that will harm the witness and the well-being of the church, that will cause division and, dis and, and uh, chaos, Lord, you invite us in in those cases. And Lord, we don't like that. I personally as a pastor have never liked that role. But God, I recognize that that's so important in a church. And God, that you also want us to be obedient in all things. That yes, to take stands when we need to, but also to be gracious and loving and kind in this process and especially uh, on the other end when people do recognize they're wrong. Thank you, God, for uh, these instructions to us. And Lord, may your church in this crazy world we live in not be outwitted by the schemes of Satan, but be faithful and true to the, your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.